0: This morning's sermon text is from John, chapter 5, verses 18 through 29. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're going to be in John chapter 5 here, John chapter 5. If you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn there so you can follow along. And as you're turning there, let's go ahead and go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we have hearts that are dry and hearts that are cold. Soften us, God. Soften us with your oil and your wine. That we might receive your word. That we might be transformed by your word. That we might know you more and delight in you more, God. Use your word as you have done so faithfully. So powerfully. Over thousands of years, God, you have used your word to do all things, to create and to bring judgment, to bring life and to bring death. God, we ask now, humbly, that you would use your word, these words written by John through your spirit, to bring life into our hearts through your son. And it is in his name that we pray, amen. One of the great things about getting older, about your children getting older, is that you're no longer this kind of flat character in their life. When they're young, you're just this person who wakes them up and feeds them, uh, disciplines them, you know, and depending on how old they are or whatever, and then puts them to bed. And that's their framework. They just kind of see who you are through themselves. And as they get a little bit older, they kind of step back and go, oh, mom, you're a real person. We're like, dad, you're a real person. You you have your own stories to tell. And so then at our our kitchen table lately, um, these kids, the kids of ours have uh, taken a liking to hearing some of the stories, basically the stories of their father's foolishness and hearing them, and then after a while, they begin regaling themselves with their own stories of their father's foolishness, you know. Oh, do you remember that time that dad had to run away from this, run for his life from this village of communist rebels in the Himalayan mountains? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you thought that was bad. What about the time that dad was Uh, canoeing in a dugout canoe in Crocodile infested Waters, and he thought it'd be funny to kind of rock the boat a little bit until they almost capsized and would have been eaten. Oh, well, you thought that was bad, is the transition. Well, what about... I'm trying to self-editing here. What about the time that Dad and his buddies thought it'd be great to go down the back roads at 75 miles an hour, um, not in the car, but while he's hanging on top of the car? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then that's always the the big transition is, well, you thought that was bad. Well, wait till you hear this. That's the same thing we see in our text here. Remember Adam's sermon of Jesus is on the Sabbath. He's healing this man who's been ill now for 38 years and he's healing him on the Sabbath. And there's this great uproar and everything else. And he's kind of telling them, well, you thought that was bad. We do hear this. God is my father. God is my father and I am equal with God and I am God. That's what we're going to be talking about in our sermon today. That Jesus is God. We're going to see that in three different ways here. Verse 18 is kind of the introductory verse. John will often have these, they're kind of a Janus verse they could face both ways. Um, It's kind of a transitional verse. So we're going to be seeing here that uh, we have life in the Son. Verses 18 through 23. We're going to be seeing how you, you must not only hear, but you must also believe in the words of this Son, who's truly God, truly man. And then also, finally, we're gonna see that we have resurrection in the Son, and only in the Son. So Jesus is God. And we're gonna see how we have life in Him. We must not just hear His words, but we must have them anchored deep within our souls. And then it is out of that, that we have resurrection in and through the Son. Let's recap here. Okay, so as you're looking at the text, how do we read narrative? They leave clues for you. What are, how, what are the bounds that we're supposed to understand these stories and interpret the text? Um, after these things, you look in chapter 5, verse 1. After these things. It's your, that's your cue. Okay, we're starting a new section here. Go to chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, it's John's little cue of like, oh, this is the bookends of the story. You see this also, oh, you're going to see it somewhere else here. Chapter three, verse 22. This is John's little cue. So as we're looking at this, at this text here, we must see it in light of what's happened prior to it. We don't just look at this. John's given us indications how to read and understand this text. So what's happening last week that Adam was preaching on, if you didn't listen to the sermon, go ahead and go back and listen to it. It was a great sermon. Christ has come to Jerusalem for this festival, this unknown festival. And just north of the temple, so you have the city of David, and then you have this temple mountain, and then just north of this temple, just 50 to 100 yards, there's this place that's now called Bethesda. And it is here that the ill and the lame would gather. So you see already the tension rising within the text. This place is of the, the sacredness and the brokenness. The sacredness and the brokenness are existing side by side. As one former rabbi who became a Christian, he wrote, On, one thought, on the one side, Bethesda, a multitude whose sufferings and false expectations arose like the wailing of a starving for bread. And on the other side, the neighboring temple with its priests and teachers who, in their self-seeking and religious externalism, neither understood, heard, nor cared for such a cry. So it's little reason, we don't have to imagine why, why would Christ both go to the temple and then go to this place of suffering? Well, he must go to the temple to teach of who he is, that he is now the dwelling place of god but then he also this is our glorious messiah he goes to those who are suffering he doesn't hold himself in with the pious and religious but no he goes amongst the suffering as well it is here that the guardians he continues of the religious faith are all utterly mistaken he writes they're elaborate trifling About the most sacred things, while around them were suffering, perishing men, stretching lame limbs into emptiness and wailing out in their mistaken hopes into the eternal silence. And perhaps, just perhaps, that is the state of your heart this very morning. Be encouraged. That we have a Christ who will leave the temple, come down the steps, and enter into us, and be so close to us while we are suffering and needing healing. And in due time, this man is healed. He takes up his mat and he walks. And Christ later sees him in the temple and he tells him, Behold, behold, you have become well. Verse 14, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And so now you have this both this, the complete healing and restoration of this man. Not just his physical healing, but now you see that he has this inward healing as well. This true, not just physical healing, but this true eternal life. Now that brings us to our, our verse here, verse 18. This. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When you first read this, you begin to think, how foolish could they possibly be? How foolish could they be? They've seen this demonstration that Jesus Christ is God. He heals this man. This man who they have seen for 38 years. They walk by him. They hear his cries. They've done nothing. But now this man is healed. And they want to kill him. But to be honest, when I began to think about it, I don't know if my reaction is any better than theirs. How many of your hearts rejoiced or wept when I told you we were going to talk about how Jesus is God? Any of you weep with the profound truth that Jesus is God? I'd rather us be cold or hot. I'd rather us weep at the thought of this or rise up in anger. I mean, just just relationally, if you hate me, I'm okay with that. I really really am. If you hate me or if you love me, great. I can deal with that. This is middle stuff. I don't know what to do with this. Same thing, spiritually. If we're lukewarm, if we hear this truth that Jesus Christ is God, are we any better than the Jews? At least they want to kill them, man. They see the implications of it, and we... I just read the text so much this week and went, oh, that is true, that is true. My affections are even more dampened than those of the pharisaical Jews. I pray that it is not the case with your heart as well, Lord. Lord, have mercy on us. So Christ is here breaking, and we see in our text, one of the most, the, the traditional restrictions of the Sabbath, and he's not breaking the Mosaic law. So the, the tr- religious traditions of what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, not actually breaking what can be done. Because the day of the Sabbath is this period of wholeness and peace, in which we commune with God. Um, we, we talked about this, Dana and I were talking about this the other day, of how Genesis 1, You see, on day one, day two, day three, all the way up to day six, there's evening and then there's morning, there's evening and morning, there's evening and morning. But then you get to day seven, look at the text, there's no indication that there's evening or that there's morning at all on this Sabbath day. And Moses is subtly communicating that this is the eternal state in which we are to be communing with God in full peace. That's what the Sabbath is about. So when Christ heals this man on the Sabbath, he's not breaking the Sabbath by working. No, no. He's actually bringing the Sabbath to come about. He's bringing wholeness and peace and restoration with God. That's the essence of the Sabbath. So he's bringing it about. And then he, he calls God, his own father, as Brian mentioned, it's, mentioned several times in the Old Testament, but it's not a common theme. If you call upon God as your father, you see in Deuteronomy 32, it's this sense of you are our father because you have created us. Or in a communal sense, you are, as, as I'm a member of this Israelite people, so then you are our father, you see in Isaiah 63 and 64. But there's never an instance Of a single man stating, God is my father. Relationally, he is my father. And you see the implications of such a thing, don't you? That Christ is the very essence, that he is the very nature of you. Why do you love your children? Because they're your very essence. They're your very nature, are they not? Even when they sin, you look at their sin and you go, oh, that's my sin, I see it. <laughs> so this truth that Jesus Christ is God is still shaking hearts from their slumber from this point all the way until now. Right now, God is saving people with this glorious truth that Jesus Christ is God. So in the rest of the text, you, you see the ways this is demonstrated. How, who, who God is? Who is this God? That he brings both judgment and death, but then he also brings life. Here, So let's, let's go back to the verse 19. We'll read through 23 here. we will explain a little bit more of what I mean. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, what can he do? Well, he can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Be warned, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So if there are two things that can demonstrate that God is God, it is that he has both life and death in his hands. That is how he demonstrates that he is God. It brings us both to rejoice and to weep and to weep and rejoice before God. This, this last week, uh, the offerman's helped us out immensely. Uh, we thought, with Rachel's pregnancy, we were going through a miscarriage, and so we were told to rush into the, to the clinic, and this gloom, having gone down this unfortunate path several times before, this gloom, this unspoken gloom comes over the house, and you cry out, but who are you crying out to? was the one who has both death and life in his hands, right? And then we go into the clinic, the, expecting the confirmation of all your fears, right? And then you see this little heart flickering away. And then you... <laughs> It's as though God has taken this hand away, and then he's given you this hand. He's taken away the death that you expected to come, and then just like that, he reveals the life to you. And then on the way home, I, I was singing the this, this song of Moses and Miriam from Exodus 15. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider he's thrown into the sea the lord my god my strength my song he has become my salvation this is my god and i will praise him my father's god and i will exalt him same thing with exodus we're seeing right he has both death and life in his hands death and judgment upon the egyptians and pharaoh's army and life for his people that is why we praise him when, when think about it, when God holds these two things, these two bookends, the Alpha and the Omega, the life and death in his hands, everything in the middle is just kind of child's play. Mountains, rivers, valleys, streams, they're beautiful, but they're nothing. They're nothing compared to death and to life. God holds death. In his hands, nations have have been raised and nations have been judged. And when you're given a pronouncement of judgment, Isaiah, you can turn to it, anywhere in Isaiah. Babylon's idols and the true God, that they will be judged in chapter 46 of Isaiah. Do you know what? It comes to pass. When he holds death in his hand and he holds it over you, it's a serious thing. That is some of you right now. But God also has life as well. Adam was given the breath of life. The, the widow of Zarephath and Elijah healing and giving life. God giving life through Elijah. And then Elisha, the Shunammite's widow, her son, not a widow was so kind to the prophet gave him enough room and he comes back and raises her son this is the god who you want to worship it's a fearful thing but this is what you want it's a daunting thing to know that he and not you hold both life and death in your hands but that's where you want them to be and this is the god whom you want to worship And this is the God that compels you to worship him. Okay, so that's how we see it in God. But how do we see it in Christ, right? If Christ Christ is God and God has these things, well, what do we see in Christ? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. So he's not a crazy man out there acting against his will when he uses this man at the pool. He's not doing his own will. He's doing what the Father compels him and drives him to do. He's doing everything according to the will of the Father. So every picture, everyone has a picture of who Christ is. right? Even the Jewish people today, they have a picture of who Christ is. Islam, they have a picture of who Christ is. But none of them have a picture that Christ is equal to God, that Christ is God. None of them have that picture. And oftentimes we kind of water down our own understanding of Christ as well. We don't see it that he too holds death and holds life in his hands. Verse 21 so also the Son. What does He do? He gives life to those whom He will. Not of their own strength, but those to whom He will. Who gives life? Christ, and Christ alone gives life. But not only life, He holds now judgment in His hand as well. For the Father judges no one, verse 22, but has given all judgment to the Son. This is what the father does, and then this is what you then see the son do as well. The son is, is constrained and also propelled by the will of his father. He, only, he doesn't do things outside of his father's will, but he does do that, which is his father's will. Just, just a side note here. We'll just do our application now, not at the end. I know me and you know me better than I know me and I'm going to run out of time. So I'm going to pull the application up right now. Have the same thing in your own life. In your Christian life that you are constrained and propelled by the will of God. When you are tempted to sin this week, just say it again and again. Repeat it to you. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but of only what he sees his father's doing. I, can, I want to be like the son. I must, I must become more and more like Christ. When we're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to loss, when you're tempted to, you can name the whole list, right? When you're tempted to that, meditate on this, this week. I can do nothing of my own will. Nothing of my own accord but only what i see the father doing let the will of god be the the bit in your mouth as you are the horse to pull you against your own will back to his path to lead you to him but it also gives you it propels you and gives you what to do and this is where there's great freedom in the christian life and that you are free to, to do all of these things, to create, to explore, to think, to love, to exercise dominion, to serve, to work. These fields are wide open before you to do the will of God, unfenced fields that you can run and run. Shall you serve too much? No. Shall you love too deeply? No. Shall you work too hard? Doing the will of your Father? No, not at all. All of these things are before you. So as we see this in the the life of Christ, being constrained and propelled by the will of God, do that as well this week. So we see this. Christ is God. And He... How has God demonstrated He's God? Both life and death in His hands. Okay. Well, it's not just God who's doing that, but also Christ. He, he's the one who gives life to whom He will, and He's the one who brings judgment, right? Physically, it's been demonstrated here, Lazarus, we see that as well, but also spiritually. He'll make you spiritually alive. But what is it See in verse 26, float your eyes down a little bit more here, that the Son will have life in Himself, and it is this life that He gives to those whom He will. What is this life, really? Prepositionally, I know it's, it's maybe con- it's contained in the blood, okay, but it's, it's not that. It's not the bios we see in plants or in animals. It's not our conscience. Some counselor might tell you, unbiblical counselor, might tell you that it's in your mind or something like that. No. What is this life? Okay, you're going to give me life. That sounds great. What is it? When you have questions like this, what do we do? How do we interpret the text? Step back a little bit. And if you want to get the true essence of what it is, see if you can answer it. Uh, in the garden and in the eternal heaven and earth, in the new heavens, in the new earth. So what is life in the garden? And what is life in the new heavens and the new earth where it's not not muddled up with sin here? What do we see in the garden? What is life? Well, God gives Adam the breath of life. It's this animation of, of his true self in which he is connected then with God, which is what you also see in the new heavens, in the new earth. So this life that he's going to give you, brothers and sisters, is complete, unfiltered, unmitigated communion with God. And that is true life. As your health begins to fail, cling to your communion with God that you will be with him forever. Not your physical health. No, that's not it. Your true life is your communion with God that we have now through the Spirit in part as the Spirit is dwelling in us. Do you not see how amazing this is? That the Son of God has come and some of you have this eternal life and it has begun already. And you have, an, um, you have a down payment of this eternal inheritance in which you will commune with God, that God is now dwelling in you. Through the Holy Spirit. Praise be to God. So Christ is then this giver of life. In our own strength, it's not us. We are not the source of light and we are not the source of life. It's not in us. It's not in others. How much of our life has been pursuing things that aren't even alive, thinking that they'll give us life? Addictions? Whatever they might be. No, all we know, all we have is the sin. That's what we, for the wages of sin is death. And that's what we can contribute. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So how can we, who are going to contribute this sin and contribute this death, all of a sudden have life bubbling up out of us? No, don't don't believe that lie. It's not found within, it It really isn't. And you don't want it to be found within because you know your own heart. Not fully, but you know it bad enough. So these thorns, are they going to produce fruit? No, they won't. This decaying body, is it going to revive itself? No, no it's not. Life is in Christ and in Christ alone. Okay, so how then should we obtain it? I want this eternal life. It's, it's in judgment in life, being held in the hands of God, or now held in the hands of Christ. I don't want the judgment. I like this life. How do I obtain it? Okay? How, what do we do? Read verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you see the two conditions here? Hearing, 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 and believing. I weep at the thought of how many of you, even in this room, this very moment, have heard and heard and heard the gospel. Children being raised up in faithful homes. Some of you others as well. You've heard these words of truth, and you do not yet believe. And these words of truth will hold over you in judgment forever, accusing you, giving you no excuse, that you have heard the truth and refused to repent and turn and to believe and to trust in Christ. You must also believe, not just hear, but you must also believe. Place all your hope and all your trust in Christ. Have you done that? Have you? Have you done that? Should we go on treating religion with the same trifling amusement that we do with all the world when we amuse ourselves to death? Is that how we're going to treat religion? In Christ as well. Just trust in Christ. Trust in the Lord alone to take the burden of your sins. That you might stand up and walk. And come into the presence of God. There's nothing else that can save you. Don't you get it? Who else is going to save you when death is held in the hand of God? That's only God. Are you going to save yourself from the hand and the judgment of God? No, it's foolishness. Absolutely not. Turn to him who will judge you that he might also save you as well. So what's the final fruit then of all of this? We see that God has this judgment in life. Christ has judgment in life. And I want this life. How do I have it? Well, by hearing and believing. I can't just believe whatever. I have to hear the word of God and properly believe in this thing. I can't just believe whatever new age thing or whatever I want. No, I just hear the words of Christ given to us now through Scripture. And believe in them. And exhaustively in them. And in them alone. Then what happens? Go to, let's just go down to uh, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, you, you thought this was bad, you Pharisee. Wait till you hear this. Not only is life in me, says Christ, but the resurrection as well. All of your hopes is in Christ. It is in His voice that we will rise either to the resurrection of life or to the resurrection of judgment. So don't fear death. Really, don't fear death at all. Uh, If you're unrepentant, don't be afraid to die. Be afraid to be raised again into the judgment, this eternal judgment. The pains of death, that's nothing compared to the eternal judgment. It's a a little down payment, if you will, of God to sober you up before this final judgment. Trust and cling to Christ and to Christ alone. It is then that you can have this, this resurrection of life. And communion with God. And how good is our God? That every ill will be undone from the fall. Death itself will be undone. We stand and look at this world and go, why is there so much evil? Why is God allowing this to happen? Be patient. Be patient. He will undo it all and it will all be undone unto his glory. And we bury those who are close to us, but soon it will be us in the casket, having the dirt shoveled upon us. But those cemeteries are not our homes. They are not our final resting places, brothers and sisters. For the voice of God that is created, all things shall again resound. And the man that was raised by the pool of Bethesda, just as he was raised, so too shall we be raised in Christ and through Christ and for Christ, all into the glory of God. Let us pray. God, show us that we have nothing. We have nothing but what we have in your Son that you have given to us. And we can be amused by things of this world. Sure, God, but let us not be so foolish to think that we have life in anything but in you. Coming through your Son, God, give us the breath of life through your spirit that we might live, live eternally. God, if some of us have been running from you our whole lives, capture us and steer our hearts towards you. Let us make no excuses for just hearing your word and thinking that's enough. God, let us surrender everything and have life Only in your Son, God, that we might commune with you forever. Amen. Amen.